This episode is sponsored by Bow Lake, the most beautiful paddle boards in the world. Visit bowlake.com and learn more. That's B-E-A-U lake.com. Bow is French for beautiful. B-E-A-U lake.com. You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Champagne producers have a good reason to pop the bubbly this year as demand for the French sparkling wine skyrocketed across the globe. Consumers around the world, and especially in the United States, have been increasingly reaching for bottles of champagne. Few champagne producers have a higher reputation than Krug, one of the region's top champagne houses. Founded by Joseph Krug in 1843, Krug sits at the apex of the world's most expensive champagnes by remaining true to its heritage and 180-year-old vision. My guest on the luxury item is Manuel Raman, president of Krug. Manuel began his career with Boston Consulting Group in France before spending the next two decades in a number of different roles at Moet Hennessy, the parent company of Krug Champagne. Prior to assuming the position of president of Krug in 2022, Manuel was the managing director of Moet Hennessy Champagne Services. Welcome to the luxury item, Manuel. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, it seems the much buzzed about demand for champagne isn't just hype. You know, it's the real thing. And Americans are leading the charge. Last year, 33 million bottles of bubbly were shipped to America from the French region. That's 31% increase from 2019 and the highest amount shipped anywhere outside of France. So what is driving that demand? Well, this is music to my ears, Scott. I think it's it's great news for the U.S. and it's great news for Champagne. Well, I guess guess it's great news for the U.S. because, you know, Champagne consumption is usually... uh, pairing with the economic health of a country, you know, limited unemployment, high level of activity, you know, desire to go out and to enjoy. I think it's it's great for the U.S. to see this, this uh, surge in demand. Uh, but I think that, you know, beyond all these economic drivers, I think that there is a there is something about Champagne. It's a fantastic news also for Champagne because, you know, during the COVID, consumption in restaurants disappeared, but it transferred to at-home consumption. So I guess that most of the consumers discovered or maybe we discovered champagne. No? They yeah. opened a bottle at home. I mean, I opened a lot of bottles at home with my friends and my family when they were able to come back and visit me. And, you know, I think people realized that champagne was much more uh, than a celebration. Uh, you know, they, they tried it as a palliative or to celebrate, but, you know, they, they discovered also that it can pair amazingly well with food. It can also go with more casual occasions such as... Uh, uh, you know, small dinners or brunch. And yeah, I guess it's a good good news for Champagne. It means that it's a, not just a celebration product, I guess. Perhaps people are rediscovering the power of positivity of Champagne. Yes, yes, correct. Correct. People want to, to gather. People want to, to have something to share. They want to, and, and you know, Champagne uh, creates a specific moment. It's true that when you, sometimes you open a bottle of champagne because it's a specific moment, but sometimes when you open a bottle of champagne, you make it a, a memorable moment. That's what I try to do with my friends. Sometimes they just come and, and visit or with my family. And when suddenly I open a bottle of champagne, well, specifically a bottle of Krug, it, it, I think it becomes a specific moment, a moment that you will always remember. 
I was reading that some producers say they are having sourcing issues and are expecting a decline in volume for the next couple of years. Given the fact that champagne by its nature takes several years to mature, that shortfall isn't obvious yet. But if the public appetite for bubbly remains strong, you know, and all signs kind of suggest that it could. So what's the supply situation at Krug? Well, no, that's that's true. That's uh, that's a reality. But before I talk about Krug, maybe one one comment on the general champagne situation. You know, most of champagne producers, you know, they keep their bottles two, three years in the cellars. Mm -hmm. So you produce more or less what you expect to sell in three years. For Krug, it's more or less seven to 10 years. And before COVID, uh, you know, champagne consumption was around 280, 290 million bottles. And now it's stabilizing around, let's say, 320, 325 million of bottles. So most of the producers, they were not ready uh, for this demand. So, and on top of that, I don't know if you're aware of that, but we had two very limited yields in the harvest 2020 and 2021. So I think mm -hmm. it's, it's a reality. And but for Krug, it's specific. I, I guess uh, we have uh, seven to ten years of stock uh, because we are on a, we age our bottles uh, much, 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 much longer. And we also we have a significant amount of reserve wines. I think it's uh, it's it helps us in a way, you know, to compensate for the ups and downs of the demand and also of nature. I'm not worried about uh, the Krug situation. Of course, we are not going to grow by five or ten percent, but I don't expect to have a decline in the next uh, in the coming years. And Krug is one of France's most iconic champagne houses and gets credit for being one of the early creators of the you know, now standard non-vintage house blend. So in your own words, what is it about Krug that makes it so special? Well, thank you for your for your these positive comments, uh, Scott. I think uh, we owe everything to our founder, Joseph Krug. You know, he, he founded Krug in 1843. Uh, he was already working in Champagne House, but he was uh, frustrated. You know, uh, new companies, usually they come from a frustration. And, and Joseph was frustrated with two things. Basically, he, he was frustrating that in Champagne at that time, you were only able to produce great Champagne two or three years in a decade because of the climate uh, variation. And the remaining seven years while well, you were doing so-so. So he was frustrated with that. And he was also frustrated with the... Uh, you know, he was a lover of champagne, but champagne in, in all its diversity. You know, he was a lover of uh, young, fresh, vibrant Chardonnay, but also more mature Chardonnay with these uh, toasty, uh, toasty notes. He was a lover of uh, Pinot Meunier, you know, uh, flowery notes and, and the, the structure, the strong, power, powerful uh, Pinot Noir. But he, he was not able to find a champagne that will gather everything in one glass. So basically, he quit his, his company and he, he founded Krug with his dream of you know, offering every year the most generous expression of champagne, regardless of the weather condition. So I think everything uh, Joseph uh, wrote at that time, it's something that we are trying to, to fight for, to carry on his, uh, you know, his legacy and his dream. So uh, basically, we, we, with the Krug Grand Cuvée, we try every year you know, to offer the most generous. And when I say generous, is is at the same time to have this... Uh, young fresh expression of younger wines from Chardonnay or for Cezanne, but also the more mature expression of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and also the lively Pinot Meunier. So it's, if you love champagne, you want to have all of it in one glass and that's what we try to do at Krug. And I, I guess it is what, uh, what uh, Krug lovers, consumers love and make uh, and find it's, uh, it's so special. And LVMH acquired Krug in 1999, and Olivier Krug, the sixth generation of the Krug family, is still involved. I believe he's the director of the house. Does Krug yes. maintain the same creative and strategic independence as other LVMH maisons? 
Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think, uh, I think uh, you know, Krug was uh, already part of another group before being acquired by LVMH. So I think now that Krug is part of a, a big group, LVMH is a big group, and, and you know, Krug is so small, and the success, the financial success of LVMH does not depend on Krug. So we have a lot of, a lot of freedom. You know, basically, the only question we have is, are you... Uh, um, are you demanding enough? Uh, are you uh, protecting enough the legacy of Joseph Krug? We don't have uh, questions about uh, financial or volume growth. I think uh, they, they understand that Krug is a, uh, you know, a small uh, treasury uh, jewel that you need to protect. Uh, but it's not uh, so. So yes, we, to answer your question, to a question, you, we we are very uh, independent in that term. And but of course, we benefit from the financial power from LVMH. I, I think we've invested a lot in uh, reserve wine tanks, invested a lot in, we are investing in a new wine facility. It's a 30 million euros project. We will not be able to do it by ourselves, by ourselves. So I think it's great. And we also benefit from, uh, you know, LVMH experts in, in sustainable development, uh, in IT, in uh, food safety. Um, and of course we benefit from the distribution network. So it's, uh, it's easier for us to be, uh, to be present in, in more countries than if we are just a standalone company. Speaking of LVMH, for all of 2022 and the first three months of this year, LVMH reported strong sales and profits with wine and spirits, champagne business driving significant growth. How did Krug fare in the mix with the other wine and spirits maisons? Yeah, that's right. But I can't give you any uh, financial specifics, you know, about Krug. But uh, what, what I can tell you is that we, we sold... Uh, uh, end of April, the same amount, the exactly same amount of bottles uh, than last year at the same time. So, as I said, we are not expecting a decline, but we can't grow. Uh, we we could grow if we had the bottles, but unfortunately, we don't have them. We are. If we had the bottles, we would be expecting growth of maybe fifteen or twenty percent, but we we don't have them, unfortunately. Maybe to give you more details about uh, where this, this growth is coming from, we we can see that uh, there, there is a demand that is growing in in places where we are not present before. Like where? Maybe to like like for instance Chile. We are not selling any bottle in Chile, and and last uh, like few months ago, uh, a young sommelier from Chile contacted me directly and said, "Well, Manuel, there is no bottle of Krug in Chile, hmm. and there are a lot of people asking for them." So we decided to send. A, 50 bottles, it's not a lot, but it's the beginning. And uh, and that's it. And in the US, for instance, we were very strong in New York, in Chicago, in, in Dallas, for instance, but now we are opening some accounts in uh, uh, in Austin, in Houston, in Washington DC, and and in, in California, for instance, not only in San Francisco, Los Angeles, but also in Santa Elena, in Hillsburg, New Orleans. So so that's, that's a type of examples why there is a, a growing demand, more and more people from more and more diverse uh, territories or communities or culture are asking for champagne and specifically for Kruger. And from what I understand, the house owns around one third of the vineyards used for its annual production needs, while the rest of the grapes are provided by a few dozen loyal growers. Is that type of arrangement unique for a champagne house? Well, you know, in, in Champagne, usually, well, 90% of the vineyard is owned by individual growers, you know, who sell their grapes to houses. At Krug, you're true, it's approximately 25% of our needs that is uh, coming from our own vineyard. And for the remaining, we work with, uh, with very loyal uh, growers. What is, uh, so this is pretty common in Champagne. What is very specific uh, to Krug and what makes Krug unique in a way is that we work on specific plots with the growers. We follow the plots all year long. We visit them uh, several times a year and we decide 
to pick when to pick the grape. You know, we decide the date of the harvest and we vinify each wine individually. So this is great for the growers because they are able to taste the product of their work three, six or seven months after the harvest. So that's why I guess they are loyal. We are very demanding, but on the same, on the same, on the same way, you know, they, they feel part of the process. They are not just suppliers. So the iconic crew Grand Cuvée in various manifestations is really at the heart of the House of Krug and comprises the majority of its production. Can you explain to listeners why its flagship Grand Cuvée is the archetype of Krug's philosophy of craftsmanship? Yes, that's true. With, uh, at Krug, we really strive to, to craft every year a new edition of Grand Cuvée. As I said at the beginning, this is the the symbol of the dream of our founder, Joseph Krug, he wanted to offer every year the most generous expression of champagne. So that's what we try to do. Let's maybe give me give you a, uh, an example. The, the edition of Grand Cuvée we are presenting now to the, to the public is the 171st edition of Grand Cuvée. It was recreated mm -hmm. after the harvest 2015. And the harvest 2015 was a very warm year. So we had fantastic Pinot Noir and very charming Chardonnay, but lacking of acidity. So that's exactly the job of uh, our wine cellar master, Julie Caville. So she, she was, uh, you know, building on the, the elements from the harvest 2015. And she looked in the library of reserve wines. We've got uh, 150 different reserve wines. And she looked into the library in order to craft the most generous expression of champagne, which means that we will take some co cooler and colder years to, to take some Chardonnay and also to, to have some Pinot Meunier from 2008, 2010, for instance. And, and like that, 171st edition of Grand Cuvée is a blend of 130 approximately wines from 12 different years, um, the, the youngest being from 2015 and the, the oldest from two, 2000. So it like takes 20, 23 years now to, to craft a a bottle of Krug Grand Cuvée. So this is exactly the symbol of, uh, of what, what we are trying to do at Krug. And cellar master Julie Caville, who is the first female cellar master for the Correct. house, has been a member of the winemaking team for about two decades. I would imagine it's a long, detailed, and arduous process. How does Ms. Caville uphold Krug's revered legacy while maintaining a forward-facing, sustainable mindset? Well, I guess there are two questions in your question. The first one is, uh, yeah. how do we make sure we ensure the, the legacy and the craftsmanship? I think, as you said, she was part of the, she started in 2006 at Krug. So she's been part of the process. She was in charge of Claude Duménil in her uh, younger, youngest years. Um, so it's, I would say it's very easy to carry on the, the legacy in terms of craftsmanship. Now, when it comes to sustainability, I think, uh, well, I, I would I would love to say, uh, that uh, Joseph Krug, uh, in, in, you know, in the way he invented a new craft, uh, he was sustainable at the beginning. You know, his, uh, his first motto was to work really precisely, to work quality and not quantity, and to express the diversity of terroir. So if your viticulture is intensive with a lot of herbicides, pesticides, you get standard uh, grapes, standard wines. And so there is nothing vibrant, nothing unique. So I think uh, if... If we want to achieve what we try to do at Krug, we need to be uh, uh, to use uh, not to use any uh, chemical uh, products. I think it's uh, it will be a nonsense to, to try to use chemical products. We will be uh, uh, you know killing the diversity and the individualities of, of different uh, plots. Yeah. I think we need to well, we need to protect and respect nature. That's uh, 
but you know it's never enough <laughs> we have a lot of commitments um, and you know in one week from now uh, i will gather the executive committee and all the team at krug and because there is a commitment with uh, targets and ambitious uh, objectives to 2025 and some of them are already uh, achieved so we need to build new objectives and uh, so no it's a, it's a it's a continuous uh, it's a continuous improvement we need to be uh, uh, very strong on that we'll be right back after a quick break with more of my conversation with manuel reman bolekin rocky shore i will Return once more. Yes, I will. Boom, diddy, boom, boom. Boom, diddy, boom, boom, boom. All right. The world's most beautiful paddle boards. Bow Lake. The water is calling. We're back with more from Manuel Ramon. So you officially came on board as the new president of Krug in early 2022. You spent many years at its parent company, Moet Hennessy, in various roles, most recently as managing director of Moet Hennessy Champagne Services. So in your role as president, when you first started, what, what have you been tasked to do? To be honest, I didn't get any uh, mission letter. You know, when I met uh, <laughs> when I met Bernard Arnault, he just wanted to make sure I was uh, passionate enough to, to take the challenge, but he didn't tell me to do this or this. And, uh, but when I arrived, of course, I, I did an analysis of the situation, and you are always, uh, you know, trying to to find is there is something that needs to be fixed urgently. And at Krug, I knew uh, I knew uh, it was not the case. You know, it's always easier when you arrive as CEO to arrive in a burning burning platform. You know, right. you arrive as a hero. That was not the case. So uh, I knew I was arriving in a very healthy situation in terms of uh, champagne, in terms of team, in terms of uh, um, you know. Um, image of the house it's uh, it was a very healthy situation but uh, so we are as i said earlier on the on the sustainability we are working on on, on a more on a continuous improvement basis you know every day we ask questions about can what can we do better what can we accelerate or can we improve and and the goals that we are setting to ourselves is to to have uh, of course an even more precise and generous expression of champagne craftsmanship is at the basis of everything I would say the second ambition will be around sustainability, as I said earlier. And the last one to, I would say, to be even more connected to Krug lovers. We must uh, talk to them even uh, in a more emotionally way. Uh, we mustn't, if they have questions about technique, we can answer. But I, I guess, as, we, as you, you said in your first question, people are more and more looking for emotions, experiences. So I think this will be our, our goal. The Krug family seems to have a long association with music. There have been a number of Krug initiatives that illuminate the passion through pairings of champagnes with different music compositions. What are the parallels between the art of making champagne and music? And in what ways has Krug brought brought it to life? That's that's a good question, Scott. And that's a question I asked the team when I arrived. And honestly, you know, I understand. I think at Krug, we like to compare wines with musicians. So this is very easy. Uh, every plot we harvest is a new, is a musician. And every year, our cellar master, Julie, you know, she's the orchestra conductor. She has to audition 250 different musicians from the harvest. So she will select some of them for the music of, for the music of the year, you know, to play in the orchestra. And she will send other uh, wines, other musicians into the reserve wines for future orchestras. So she also have, uh, she also has, you know, 
150, a little bit more, 150 uh, musicians from the reserve, from previous years, you know, to sum up with the wines from the year. So she works uh, as a selection. She creates a full orchestra from, you know, as I said, the bright Chardonnay, a violin, for instance, uh, to the generous drum of Pinot Noir, or the, the Pinot Meunier will be more the triangle. Uh, it's not something that is uh, in the, that is key in the blend, but without uh, the Meunier, you would miss something. It's like the triangle in the orchestra. So we love to play uh, with this analogy. It makes it easier for non-experts to understand our craft. And uh, as I said earlier, we, we love at Krug to talk uh, about our craftsmanship without talking techniques. Did that connection to music start back when uh, Joseph Krug started the house? No, not exactly. A little bit uh, later, and I think it's really in the 70s that uh, when uh, Henri Krug uh, and Remy Krug started to say that uh, their job is really like uh, the one of a conductor. And then the analogy started and we are working on this analogy. And now, you know, we are even uh, playing with, uh, we are going further. We bring uh, this in, you know, to life through music pairing experience. It works like a food pairing experience, but right. we believe that there are some music which are the perfect expression, I would say, of the emotions you have when you taste uh, Krug. So we try to pair uh, Krug with uh, sometimes a jazz, sometimes a classical music, opera, or it can be electronic music. It's, uh, it's quite playful, I would say. So the strong post-COVID rebound of the champagne industry seems to reinforce the consumer premiumization trend that people are spending more on better, looking for ways to add luxury and celebration to their daily lives. Though not exclusive to this category, premiumization becomes incredibly relevant here. Are you seeing palettes becoming more refined with consumers looking for specific champagnes with a story to tell? Yeah, yeah, that's true. People are, you said that people are spending more on better. I would say yes, but what I see is also people spending more on experiences and they want moments that, uh, you know, they can share and they can remember. They are not just buying an item or consume something. They, what we can see at Krugler, that Krug lovers are more and more interested in the concept of editions, for instance. Some people will say one edition is the same thing as the, as the next edition. You, 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 you present it every year, a new edition, but actually they want to understand what, what was different from the year 2014 to the year 2015, for instance, and why you had 130 wines in the 171st edition and 190 in the 170th edition. So what, what, I, what I try to say is that they want to understand more and more deeply uh, what they are buying, what they are experiencing. They, they, they want to... They want to understand better. They want to have something to share, something to tell. It's uh, and it's great news. I mean, they want to they want to to have a better culture. How is Krug finding new ways to engage with champagne lovers and grow market share? Well, we we are not uh, unfortunately uh, uh, trying to find a new market share because we 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 are very small and we don't have a lot of uh, ability to grow. But but it's true that we are trying to connect even more with uh, with our Krug lovers. One example will be the Krug ID. The Krug ID is something that was invented right. uh, uh, approximately 10, a little bit more than, more than 10 years ago. It's a, it's a six digit uh, number that is on the back of every bottle. And if you go on the Krug app or on Google, you can uh, find uh, the, the details and the explanation of what you have in your glass. And you can also find food pairing, of course, and obviously music pairings. So it's a great way to connect with them to, to give them more knowledge and more depth into what they are what they are testing. So this is one example. Another example is uh, the work we do with a lot of chefs around the world, Krug Ambassade, 
uh, we play with a single ingredient. Every year, we ask the chef to, to play around one ingredient. So this year, this is, this is a lemon. Last year, it was a rice. And before that, the onion. So it's really playful. And it's, uh, the chefs are sharing some recipes. So it's, uh, it's a way to, to talk about something else than just uh, you know, wine, technicity, uh, pH, or chemistry. You know, it's, uh, it's about giving them a way to experience something. All the current stats about wine sales show that older generations in America and Europe are still drinking wine, but there has been a fall off in sales to the Gen Xers and young people in general for whom the market is crucial to allow growth. However, it seems younger people are taking to sparkling wines like Prosecco, which has a reputation for being price accessible, versatile, and approachable. Do you think the champagne houses have to do a better job at attracting millennials? Well, I think everybody needs to do a better job at uh, maybe not attracting, but I would say at connecting with millennials. They are not interested by the same uh, type of thing, and not all of them want to become uh, champagne or wine experts. So it's, uh, it's it's necessary for us to understand them, and so in that way to talk to them. I go often to to business schools or to uh, young people or young school analogy team. Uh, to, of course, to share what is Krug, but also because I love to hear their questions. And uh, when I come back to, to Krug after that, it's always refreshing. It's always, uh, you have new, new questions and new directions in which, uh, uh, in which to work. It's, so it's, uh, it's great. We need to connect with them, uh, I guess, with music. We are not only working with classical music, we are working with also electronic music. And I think the, the, the way we talk about gastronomy, uh, that's what they say, actually. Uh, it's really, uh, it's poetic, uh, it's witty, it's, uh, it's not serious in a way. So I think it's uh, something we need to do uh, even more, reveal the modernity in, uh, in, in Champagne. I think it's our duty. Just like every other food item, Champagne grapes are not immune to climate change. Average temperatures are continuing to climb and concerns are growing in the champagne wine industry about the prospect of losing the characteristic qualities of its famous bubbles, which rely on acidity and vivacity. How has Krug been preparing for the effects of climate change? Yes, that's the question uh, we have with, uh, with the team, actually. Uh, we can feel the effect of climate change, that's for sure, with uh, you know, the date of harvest that becomes sooner and sooner. Maybe not this year. We might have harvest mid-September, but still, if you look at the average, We've lost one month, or we are one month sooner than, than the decade before. But at Krug, I would say that we are pretty immune to its effect so far. Um, I think this relies into the fact that we have this philosophy of uh, looking at plot by plot or small plot by small plot. So if during the testing one year, we, we believe that there is one plot which is too much exposed to the sun or to the heat, we decide that we need to change and maybe switch to another plot that will be less exposed or more northern facing. Um, so it's it's easier, I would say, for us to, to, to do a kind of amortization of climatic change. I think what is uh, going to, to, to touch us as everybody is the climatic variation, such as uh, frost, uh, storms, that we could have during the viticultural season. So I see uh, more uh, concern on quantities than on quality. And consumers are also concerned about climate change too. So what are you doing to communicate that to the consumer about all the strides you're taking? Well, as I said earlier, we are doing a lot, but to be honest, we have not chosen to communicate a lot on this. I think it's uh, there is a lot of greenwashing uh, all over the industry, not only in Champagne, but in the wine industry or, or more globally. 
And we, we just want to challenge ourselves. We ask also our employees to challenge ourselves, uh, to challenge us. We ask some NGO to challenge us, but we are not communicating uh, a lot. I think uh, if Google lovers ask us some specific questions, we answer, but we do not want to be uh, it, uh, it to be uh, at uh, a selling point, I would say. Right. Uh, are we using herbicides? No, uh, no, of course we are not. Uh, are we, uh, do we have to say it? I believe we don't. Maybe those who use herbicides should put it on the label. I think it's a, everybody should be at the highest standard and those who are not should be blamed and shamed for that. Celebrated Grammy and Oscar winning composer and a longtime Krug lover, Ryuichi Sakamoto sadly passed away recently. He had just teamed up with the House of Krug to compose a symphony dedicated to three Krug champagnes from the year 2008. Can you share how that partnership came about the experience he created and what he meant to the House of Krug. Well, that's true. That's a, that's a tragedy. Uh, it's uh, still difficult to talk about it. Uh, we knew Riachi uh, was ill, but you know, still, uh, when the news came, it was a shock for us. So uh, we, it was difficult to to carry on talking about it. But still, if uh, I remember uh, this time, it was four years ago when the team. Uh, started to connect with him and we discovered he was a Krug lover. The idea was to ask him to translate his emotions of drinking uh, Krug champagne into music. And Ryuchi was a perfect choice, not only because he was a Krug lover, but also because he was a, a film music composer. And what I love in his music is that uh, they transcript the emotions of the film, of the movie. So he was, he was perfect. He did that. Uh, it was a, a journey of two to three years. And uh, the conclusion and the result was a, a symphony in three acts, three movements, with a, a soloist to pair with uh, or to express his emotions, tasting the Cru Clos de Milly 2008. Then it was a small ensemble uh, movement for the Cru 2008 vintage. And finally, a full orchestra music for the Grand Cuvée. So it was a uh, 33 minutes of course you can find uh, i did those music in spotify yes i love it i love it too so we talked about this earlier champagne is a beverage that symbolizes all that is positive in life celebration love happiness and also paired to any moment in your life how do you see champagne interwoven with life today well well this is true you know people often associate champagne to success celebration birth or also romantic date but uh, I think more and more champagne is seen in other occasions, more casual. We talked earlier about the brunch or the casual dinner with your friends. I think people want to make every moment count. And it is even uh, more true after COVID. You want to make every moment count and every moment an emotion. And maybe also not only the COVID, but maybe also Instagram as a boost, as boosted, I would say, this, uh, this desire to make every moment specific and, and shareable. Um, so I would I would suggest you, Scott, or maybe your auditors, to open a bottle of Grand Cuvée for your next dinner. I hope it will make it unforgettable. So, what are Krug's ambitions in the coming years? I said I, I will I will uh, maybe repeat myself, but three three ambitions. Uh, the first one is craftsmanship with no compromise, and and we need to be uh, even more precise and even more generous in our Grand Cuvée, um, and of course increase transparency. We need to have a Krug ID. Uh, a new version of Krug ID with even more information and transparency. Second objective will be sustainability. And of course, third objective to, to make Krug available maybe to new territories, new cultures, new communities, or new generations. This is our duty. I mean, we love Krug, I love Krug, and I want to have a, 
uh, Krug shared with uh, the greatest uh, number of people. It's almost like I'd like to buy the world a Coke, but uh, <laughs> but with champagne. <laughs> Correct. So my final question, Manuel, is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only have one single luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air or water <laughs> transportation to get you off that island or anything that requires mobile service so you can call somebody to get you off that island. Okay. It says you, sand, palm trees, miles and miles and miles of ocean. What would that one single luxury item you would like to have with you? Well, you know, you might find it's not a luxury item, but if you, but I, have, I, I saved a lot of, uh, I've saved rent uh, during many, many months to, to be able to afford it. It's uh, my bike, uh, because I have two passions in life, uh, wine and bike and sports. So I will, uh, I will take my bike. And uh, if you, if you still say it's not a luxury item, uh, ask my wife. She says it's a luxury <laughs> item. So this will be my answer, uh, Scott. <laughs> Manuel Ramon, president of Krug, thank you so much for joining me on The Luxury Item. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of The Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.